This is a podcast about the disappearance of Barry Zeldin in October of 2013 in the Pine Barrens. This is episode six, season one of Beyond the Garden Gate. Seems funny they found him today. They walked shoulder to shoulder with bloodhounds and didn't find him, and all of a sudden they're here today. Hey guys, this episode was recorded in early December and there's been an interesting update. So when it sounds like we're winding down at the end, keep listening for a solo update from me. Thanks. So we wanted to put together a little episode here uh, on Beyond the Garden Gate quickly because there is something else that's developed in the Warren Grove area um, that's been interesting over this hunting season and Thanksgiving. Uh, we have a story coming out of Stafford Township uh, up off Cedar Bridge Tavern Road. Uh, this is a little bit north of where Barry went missing and where his vehicle was recovered, but it's uh, an interesting story. And uh, there was a couple um, by the name of Gary and Lorraine Parker. Gary was 67 years old and Lorraine was 60. Uh, they lived up there on Cedar Bridge Road. Their daughter, Posted on Facebook on 22nd of November, she posted that her parents had last been heard from on November or last seen on November 17th and that she was looking for them and looking for any information on anybody who could help her locate her own parents. Uh, A neighbor came forward and the neighbor said that they spoke with the Parkers on the 21st of November. So they had... I believe that the woman, neighbor, the female neighbor had a conversation, a, a phone conversation with Lorraine. Okay. So, yeah, not- so I think the family, the family's last contact was on the uh, 17th, but the last time they were seen period was the 20 was the 21st by that neighbor. Yeah. They were at least spoken to on the 21st yeah. and everything seemed okay. The daughter's name is Lindsay Parker. I believe there's one other daughter named Haley. Um, we are recording this on December 1st, and we would like to pass along our condolences to the Parker family, uh, but we'll take you through the story a little bit here at a time and try to be as sensitive as we possibly can. So they go, they're last seen uh, physically on the 17th, and then they are last heard from on the 21st. Uh, on the 22nd, she officially reports him missing, and she goes to Stafford Township and talks to the Staff- Stafford Township police about it. So that's key to remember here. It's not New Jersey State Police. 
she goes local to Stafford Township. Stafford Township begins a search. They're not asking for volunteers, and they begin to search near the house where the Parkers, the Parkers live. Um, there were about 100 people involved with the search. Uh, they talked about groups and dogs. I haven't been able to identify who they've used. I don't believe they used Burlington County Canine Search and Rescue. I think that it was more likely that they used police, actual police maybe from other jurisdictions, Stafford police. Um, a lot of times they'll use the guys at the academy um, to do this kind of thing. And I don't know where the dogs were from. I have no idea. So a few days goes by, the police report, they give a little bit more information and they report that because this is the way they work. They give you a little bit and, you know, they're, they're keeping all, keeping a lot of their cards close to their vest. I think we know that from, you know, what we went through with Barry's story. So they report that the quad, and actually they didn't report it. Lindsay did. She said that my father's quad was found and I'm just quoting in a field behind the house. Okay. And that his shotgun was still strapped to the quad. So now the cops find this quad and it's in the middle of a field with the shotgun still strapped to it. Okay. That was a few days after the search began. No remains, no body found. We're now about two weeks into this. And before we talk about what went on, let's talk about the fact that they found the quad in the middle of a field. Because you and I talked about that a little bit. Yeah, it's pretty unsettling. Yeah, and here's why. Because there's not enough detail there. Okay, so we don't know. Is this? Do they have a field behind their, their property? I looked online, and I, I couldn't find one behind their property that was obvious. But then again, a lot of the, the Google satellite pictures are summertime pictures. So it's hard yeah. to see the lay of the land. Uh, but once again, is this just like some random field off an ATV trail? Is it maybe their backyard? So it's interesting that these little details, you know, kind of get people's minds spinning. And we don't know. It could, it could basically have just been found in the middle of their yard. But let's talk a little bit about what you and I talked about with finding, let's say they were on this quad, okay, just to play devil's advocate. We don't know that, but let's say they were. The fact that it was found in the middle of a field is very odd. And the fact that it was found in the middle of the field and with a shotgun still strapped to it is extremely odd. And you and I talked a little bit about this. Um, you know, it's not like you go out 200 yards behind your property or wherever and you're expecting to run into some problems, right? But if he was carrying a shotgun, perhaps he was doing some hunting uh, although right now it's bow season here in New Jersey. So, you know, yeah. I, I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he just had it for personal protection. And yeah, it could have been, it could have been for personal protection. It could have been from uh, snakes or something. I don't know. Right. And if this is some random field that's behind their house and it's not their yard where this thing is found, then that would assume that they were riding this ATV and they stopped and got off of it. So if they did stop, get off of it in the middle of this field that's behind their house. And once again, we don't know. 
I don't know if it's their yard. I don't know if they went down the trail a little bit and got to this field. Okay. Or maybe he even stores it there. It would be very odd for you to store your quad and your shotgun in the middle of a random field, but we don't know. Yeah. But we can. Well, I was thinking, you know, before I started thinking of, you know, the more unsettling, you know, theories I had, I was thinking like, why would it, why would an ATV just be abandoned in the middle of a field? Either A, it, it could have been stuck, which was never specified in the report. It could have been maybe inoperable, like maybe there's some sort of engine failure and they had to just leave it there. Right. But what doesn't make sense is that they would leave that shotgun attached to it. Because no. especially like if you're if you're you know, you got kids that could be out there, you don't you don't want to leave your if you're I can see walking away from an uh, inoperable vehicle if you can't get any further with it. But you're not going to leave your shotgun attached to it. That's bananas to me. So excellent point. Excellent point. Yes, exactly. So you and I were were riffing a little bit on you know what would cause somebody to let's just assume that it was operable. Let's just assume it didn't run out of gas. Okay, just for the sake of this conversation, what would stop? What would stop you in the middle of a field? and have you get off without your personal safety device. You know, and we were talking a little bit about this. Would it be somebody there kind of playing possum themselves? Maybe somebody just laying there acting like they were hurt or injured or something along those lines? Um, Yeah, I mean, you hear about this kind of thing all the time. Right. Where, you know, people get unfortunately taken advantage of because somebody presents a situation that's a trap, you know, but it's a disarming, you know, initially. So you may see, uh, I know for a while there was a, a big thing where there would just be strollers on the side of the road with like dolls in them. And people would see this and stop thinking, you know, there's like an, an abandoned child like on the roadside. Yeah. And then, you know, before you know it, they're getting hemmed up and their cars being stolen and, you know, just that and a third. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it could have. They could have ran into a situation like that. It could have been something as is crazy as just like a box with a bow around it sitting out there in the middle of the field. Right. Something caused them to stop, but was you know not being so innocent enough that like they didn't need to get their personal protection out. Exactly. You know? Yeah, I, I'll add a quick story to that. One of one of the, my father in law is a really interesting guy. He uh, he's like an old cowboy. Um, they raise cattle. Uh, so he's, he's a tough character. And, um, he told me a story about down in the South. A lot of times what would happen is bikers would, you know, break down or they would act like they were broke down in the middle of the road or a biker would lay across the road. Um, you know, and then somebody would stop and they would, the bikers would come out and rob them. And then, you know, even sometimes rape their women. And my father-in-law ran into that one night coming home from his mother-in-law's house. He literally ran into a biker was laying in the middle of the road had acted like he fell down and he just, he knew what was up and he just gunned it and they chased him for a little while. And he had my wife in the car, you know, when she was in her single digits and all that good stuff, you know, she was still really young and they, he just took off. He was just like, I I know what this is. I, he just had that funny feeling, you know, and he used to go around armed all the time so i'm sure he didn't specify but i'm sure he was packing and had it ready to go but if 
something's going to happen and it's going to disarm you a little bit. It, the weirdest thing about it is it's probably not going to be a guy laying there. Um, we talked about that a little bit too. You know, could it be a woman? Could it be a child? Could it be, like you said, some kind of box in the middle of the road? Could somebody in the middle of the field, could somebody have put a stray dog there to distract somebody and get them coming along, you know? So if we want to go down that branch of thinking, there's there's a lot of uh, weird things about where why that ATV was in the middle of the field. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> now, I mean, somebody's going to jump you. Right. And, and forcibly force you off that ATV and maybe catch you unaware. They're most likely going to do it in cover. Right. So you're going to be a little bit further down the trail. You're not going to be in the middle of a field. So yeah, it's just bizarre. This just the staging. It's, it seemed either staged or very strange to me. Yes. Initially. Yes. If we, we are to assume that he didn't store his, TV in a random field, you know, so it, it was, it was just a little odd. So she put that Facebook post out there. Uh, they found that, um, then they gave out a little, and this is what they do. They gave out a little bit more information a little bit later on. Cause you know, then a lot of people react on social media and they were like, Hey dummies, you know, search for their cell phones. And we've been through the whole cell phone pinging thing. And it's a lot more accurate than it used to be. Um, but it's still not a perfect science. Um, so a lot of people were putting forward, well, they should just, you know, get a warrant to get their cell phone ping history, you know, because you can do that. You can find out where somebody is. You can also do it to eliminate suspects and murders and things of that nature. Um, you know, or at least get, include them, include suspects you can't eliminate them for that but you can include them if you if you get a ping from their cell phone in an area so a lot of people were calling for that on social media and then the police gave a little bit more information out and they said well we found their cell phones in the house along with their wallets and all their credit cards so i can only speak for myself if you know i i had a recreation property i would probably not go out with my cell phone I would probably not go out with my wallet if I was just going out for a quad ride. Matter of fact, I wouldn't want to lose it. Um, yeah. A lot of people want to take pictures, though, when they go out. So the cell phones being back at the cabin are a little bit unusual. Yeah, I you know, they were about the same age as my parents are right now. Before my pop started having medical problems, he would, he would just never take his cell phone with him. And we would, as the kids, would always just be like, why just have it with you in case of an emergency like that's what you're supposed to have it for right but he just it, it took him a while now he carries it with him everywhere but there was a there was a time where he was just not taking it with him right so yeah it's a little bit yeah. easier now to take it everywhere with you right now they're pocket sized you know they're not those flip yeah. phones anymore. It's a lot easier to take them along with you, and plus you use them for a lot more stuff now. They're basically your camera too, right? So, yeah, they're they're not just a phone anymore, right? They're your GPS. They're your camera. They're your you know way to talk to people. You know, and I get how the younger generation. I mean, I'm 55. I get how the younger generation. You're in your 30s. I get how you see that as you know being a little bit odd. We don't know what type of cell phones they had, right? These people were in their 60s. Either way, 
um, it would be unusual not to take it with you to take pictures. Because yeah. if you're going out for a quad ride, usually what you're, you're going to do is you're going to, you know, maybe go look at a sunset or, you know, some pretty area in the woods and, you know, you're going to take some pictures for your social media. I don't, I, I don't know whether they had social media accounts. I have no idea. But I found that a little bit odd that the cell phones were back at the cabin. Uh, not so much that the wallets were back at the cabin um, because that yeah. would be a and precaution. Even, and even though they had the shotgun and it's, you know, postseason, they could have been out scouting. I didn't, it, I couldn't find out if they were hunters or not. I was looking that up and I couldn't find anything about that. I did see, yeah, I did see a mention of how they were outdoorsy. I did see several mentions of that and that the, the township cops were actually hopeful that they could survive because they were so outdoorsy. So they, they did, they were outdoorsy. And there's a picture of Gary and he has a pen reel shirt. So, you know, he's got really good taste in fishing reels. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent <laughs> taste in fish and reels. Everybody <laughs> does, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it, they're real dependable reels. So I would say that he was probably pretty outdoorsy. And then you've got your shotgun, too. And we do have that picture. So, you know, they were people that like to be out, out and about and outdoors. So we moved the story forward. And like I said, we're talking about it on December 1st. And you and I had talked about how weird all this was over the weekend. And then yesterday, which was the 30th, at probably around the evening, I think it was about 6 or 7 o'clock, I heard that they recovered the bodies. So we'll talk a little bit about this because this is a head scratcher. Um, And before I talk about it, let me play this little clip. To some more breaking news right now, police confirming they found the bodies of a husband and wife who disappeared from their home in Ocean County. NBC 10 Jersey Shore Bureau reporter Ted Greenberg is joining us live near that scene in Stafford Township with what was discovered today. Ted? Yeah, certainly a sad outcome here in Stafford Township this afternoon, Jim. Since we last talked with you at 4 o'clock, law enforcement authorities have left the area of the couple's home. There are still many unanswered questions about what happened to them and how they died. But police say there are no signs of foul play. A grim discovery made from above. Stafford Township police, using a department drone, say they found the bodies of Gary and Lorraine Parker in thick woods around 1 this afternoon. The couple found some 200 yards behind their house on Cedar Bridge Road. It's really upsetting. Like, I never thought this would happen in my life. Like... It's crazy. With the drone up the air, he just uh, noticed um, some, I'll say, some different colors in the the thick wooded area, which turned out to be the clothing that uh, they were wearing. The couple was reported missing just over a week ago. Massive searches on the ground over two days last week turned up no sign of the Parkers, but authorities did find a quad belonging to them. Police say the bodies were discovered in that same area. Seems funny they found them today. They walked shoulder to shoulder with bloodhounds and didn't find them, and all of a sudden they're here today. We were through this area, but not directly where the bodies were located. They say there were no obvious signs of trauma. As of right now, in speaking with the uh, major crimes from the Ocean County Prosecutor's Office, it does not appear to be any foul play. Um, However, there is still uh, some work to be determined. 
Investigators hope autopsies on the couple will be able to shed more light on the case. Those autopsies expected to be performed later this week. So like the old timer says there in the clip, they're found 200 yards from their house. Okay. And what they describe is a densely wooded area and they were found uh, with a drone. But the gentleman has an excellent point. If they walk through arm in arm, basically an arm's length apart, because that's the way they do these grid searches. And they had bloodhounds. How did they miss these guys 200 yards uh, from their home? It doesn't make any sense, man. Just just the way the, the nature of grid searches on top of having canine units, it seemed like that would be they would be found reasonably quick, you yeah. know, on the first search. So let's talk about the search. Okay, let's talk about the the manner with which this was done. I think one of the interesting things right off the bat for me, and I found out that there are a lot of people locally <clears throat> and a lot of cops listening to this podcast, which is great. I'm glad to have you guys you know, get off your ass and email us, talk to us, you yeah. know, give us the information that you're kibitzing with each other about, you know, talk to us. I'm not going to put you on the radio or on the, on the show. I'm not going to grill you. I'm just looking for you tips. Can totally remain anonymous. Exactly. Remain anonymous. Wicked garden podcast at gmail.com. If you want to send it to a shorter address, send it to my personal, which is Mike Mick 0209 at yahoo.com. Okay, but just get in touch with us and talk to us. Okay, so let's talk about how this search was done. One of the things that stood out to me right off the bat was that the the state police were not involved in the search. Right off the bat, right off the bat, it was Stafford Township. So, you know, I found it weird that the state police were hands off in that respect with the search itself. I guess it falls under the jurisdiction of Stafford. I guess that could explain it. But state police weren't out there running to get control of this search. Okay. And that was probably a good thing because they don't close cases anymore in New Jersey. They just don't. They haven't since I mean, Barry. It's just, it's, just, it's a statistic fact at this point. You look it up. Don't, yeah. don't take my word for it. I don't hate cops. Weirdly. Most of my friends are cops. <laughs> Just made a new friend the other day who is a U.S. Marshal. I, 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 I have the utmost respect for the job they do. You're, you're, you know, you have a background in the military. Okay, I love the cops. Okay, I, I'm down with you guys. Love it. Not a cop hater, but I found it strange that the state police wasn't involved and that was a good thing because like i said they haven't closed cases since prior to when barry went missing okay and there's a reason for that we're going to have a guest on the show to talk about that a little bit um i hope at least he talks about that he talked to me about it um privately and hopefully he'll come on and talk a little bit about the politics that's involved with that um because there is some politics behind it so you know, anyway, we'll be having, we'll have another show just as an update on everything going on with Barry. Yeah. Just to give me discuss law enforcement and you know, where they've been very cooperative and where they haven't been cooperative at all. 
I have a de- and, detailed know, timeline. Yeah, we've reached out to these guys numerous times. We've tried to have a very open discussion. We've been very polite. And we have had some cooperation at some points, and at some points we've been really uh, just strung along, and it's, it's been very frustrating. Uh, it, it's we'll, we'll be getting into that. That'll be an entire show in itself, just talking about the uh, – yeah, the rigmarole that comes along with the, the trying law to trying to find out missing yeah. persons cases. I hope it's getting better. I hope they're realizing they're not closing cases, but that's just what's going on, guys. Um, so that that was a good thing they weren't involved. Now let's talk about initially they go missing, right? So we know that they were they went missing on the twenty first. So your first. And any search and rescue person will tell you the first duty of search and rescue is recovery, right? So you want to recover someone while they're still alive. Um, it's haunting season here now. It's the holidays. We have had some cold overnight temperatures. We've had our frost, uh, all that good stuff. It's getting cold here at night. It's not as cold as it is, as it is where Garrett is. Um, you were, what, minus five the other day? So, yeah. It's, uh, so, but it's, that was a nice day. Yeah. <laughs> about minus 15 years. Yeah. Did you have to use a lot of sunblock? So, you know, Garrett's got some cold temperatures out where he is. It's been cold here, but not that cold. You know, one of the, the biggest tools for search and rescue is, and you could probably speak to this a little bit more than I can, is FLIR technology for looking infrared uh, equipped on aviation units. So I cannot for the life of me get anybody to, I've asked it several times and maybe somebody knows. And once again, get in touch with us if you know, because I would love to know. Um, in this particular case, the NJSP aviation unit was used um, and a reporter from the Asbury Park Press asked a very good question and didn't get an answer. Um, he asked them if they were using FLIR in the initial efforts to find this couple and he got a no no comment he got a he was not he was he wasn't told either way so i don't know i don't know where this thing's housed okay we don't know what type of of helicopter it even is okay um i mean i do know that i do know that one of the guys who operates it has a house here on Brigantine. That's a long story how I know that. Okay. But I know that they, at least one of the pilots lives here. Maybe I'll try to go down that route to find out, but that could have really been valuable at the beginning of the search, because if something happened yeah. to them and they were in some kind of uh, health situation where they were, you know, I, I don't know, do multiple strokes happen to two people at the same time? Whatever, right? I mean, we just have to explore this possibility. But if there was some kind of health issue, something happened, maybe there was, you know, who knows, right? You don't know. Um, FLIR would have been really helpful in the first couple of days. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's, you know, it's super invaluable tools. If you're going to be doing any kind of search and rescue work or, you know, Anytime you have to look for a person in brush or in an urban area, even uh, FLIR is definitely going to be to your advantage. I mean, we're talking not just missing persons here, but like, uh, you know, 
Amber Alerts, escapees, if you're like hawking down a fugitive or a suspect, it's definitely a, a tool you want. And the fact that this guy didn't know if it was being used, uh, maybe that public affairs officer or whoever was giving that comment just didn't know what it was, or maybe uh, he knew that they weren't using it. God, I hope not. And I hope in 2021 everybody knows what FLIR is. Right? Something else I'm just going to speculate on is the fact that this is, again, this is the first we're recording this. And this happened over the holiday weekend. I hate to think that, you know, it was just a fact of minimal manning. So I know being federal that when it's a federal holiday, you're probably looking at 96, which is just another way we say four days off in a row. Um, <laughs> a lot of these guys ain't banking or coming in. A lot of them aren't on call. And if they are, you know, it's, it's the guys that are guaranteed they're going to be off for the Christmas 96. You know, they're, they're the guys that may be working or are on call for the Thanksgiving holiday 96. So it's a situation where you don't have as many people at your disposal as you normally would being that it's a holiday weekend. FLIR, if we're talking FLIR, yeah, you can absolutely have a FLIR-equipped drone, but at the same time, it's 90% of FLIRs are on helicopters. Or, you know, as far as actual aircraft go, um, they are on fixed wings, but I would say the majority yeah. of them is on helicopters. And if the helicopter being used was state police, it may not be designated for state police. It may be a state helicopter. Maybe it's multi-use. So a lot of times you'll have an aircraft with the tail number that doesn't change, but the call sign will change with different missions. So it may be a DEA Monday, or it may be search and rescue on Tuesday. On Wednesday, it could be, uh, you know, it could be just a passenger transfer aircraft. It, it, you, it's not uncommon for states to have multi-use aircraft. But where you would have FLIR guaranteed would be the military. Also, the National Guard. Uh, we have these aircraft. States have access to these aircraft when, you know, when you don't have access via the police department, for example. If, if the police just didn't have a helicopter with FLIR and they wanted to use FLIR, they could reach out, activate the National Guard, use one of the Black Hawks they have, or any aircraft equipped with FLIR to go out there and do the mission for them. Would they be aware? And I didn't see, I didn't see any mention of any uh, National Guard aircraft being used. Would so they, I'm assuming. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I'm interrupted. I got a good question to ask, but I want to let you finish your thought. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm assuming that if they used FLIR, they would have said so when they were asked in that interview. Right. Or, well, you know, maybe, maybe he didn't ask the right person. Right. But I, I, I would, I know that it wasn't, I've asked several times whether it was used in Barry's and gotten a stone wall. Okay. Now that was 2013, but let me ask you a question. You mentioned the national guard. Is there anything like that available in Lakewood to your knowledge? Uh, Lakehurst. Lakehurst. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't think I can comment on that. <laughs> okay. All right. So, but you but would think you, me, you would think that somewhere like, in New Jersey there would be a FLIR. Uh, definitely. Okay. Okay. Definitely. No, that's good yeah. enough. 
Yeah, that's good enough. Um, so yeah, so edit edit all this out, but yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, so, the answer is yes. And so, they have they have shit better than Fleer there because, uh, like I said, the FBI Cessnas did uh do all the ops over Manhattan and shit. They they're based out of Lakehurst. That's where the FBI hangar is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then fixed wing would be a little bit overkill in this situation, but um, yeah, but yeah, the tools are there. The tools are there. Yeah, they if, have, yeah. If the, we can, the military has tons of Fleer aircraft. I'm assuming the police do. Yeah, one of the things we want to do with this, you know podcast is just point out that it's broke here in this state. Okay. That the way that search and rescue is done is broke. So that's, if we can accomplish that and that's not me, that's not my opinion. Okay. That I just drew out of thin air. I've talked to professionals. I've talked to people here who do search and rescue and I've talked to people in other states who do search and rescue both in an official capacity and a volunteer capacity. And they've both told, they've all told me that, you know, it's broke here and this, we pay enough property taxes in this state that we should have that asset available to us. When one of our citizens goes missing in a wooded area, I would imagine that it's just, you know, like second nature in Alaska, Colorado, Utah, Idaho, probably in California, I would imagine they would have it. They probably, you know, God knows what they have out there. Um, yeah, but I think it's interesting, you know, you're you're talking about it maybe possibly being a multi-use thing. You know, is it Murphy's limo today? You know, is it is it doing something else for the DEA another day? That, that's interesting. So if we can do anything with this podcast, hopefully we move forward and at least getting some kind of resolution to why it's so broke here. Okay. And I think that that's key. One of the things that this state has to stop doing is it has to stop running like it's a suburb of New York and Philly. Okay. There, there's a massive area of a million acres here. And if we need that flare, we need it, get it. Yeah, it's 2021 start modernizing this stuff put together. You know, I, I understand that there's a lot of urban areas here and it's the densest state, you know, I get it, but we, we have a million acres where people can get lost. We need the tools to do it. I was impressed that Stafford township had ATV units um, that they used in it. And as a matter of fact, I, I got to say the Stafford township people have been on point. Uh, every interview that I've heard, uh, with those guys has been on point, uh, especially that uh, I think his captain Vaughn, James Vaughn, absolutely on point. Um, impressive individual. They seem like they have their hands around this. Can't quite understand why if the bodies were there on the 23rd and 24th, 200 yards from the house, they didn't find them. But, you know, that could be some who knows who knows what, what's going on there. Yeah, and what we know right now is, you know, as of today's recording, um, autopsies are supposed to be performed next week, and we don't know the cause of death, but what the police put out is that no foul plays suspected, which, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so let me talk a little bit about that, um, and... I'll talk a little bit about it, and then I'll play a brief video. The video is three minutes long, and I'll link to it in the show notes too. 
perhaps I won't play the whole three minutes, but it's something that, you know, if you're interested in this type of podcast and if you're interested in true crime podcasts, you should probably take a look at it. Um, and it's about the five stages of decomposition. And uh, they have some technical Latin names to them. Um, but the stage where the Parkers would be today on the first or on the date of recovery on the 30th is the second stage. Okay. So let me play that here. Talk about the different stages of human decomposition. Welcome to death science. Okay, this is cadaver 138, a good example of stage one, autolysis, and stage two, bloat. Stage one, autolysis, occurs immediately at death after the heart stops and breathing stops. Since carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and other gases in the deceased are trapped inside the body, it creates an acidic environment which breaks down cells and releases enzymes. This all kicks off the decomposition process, generally within the first three days. Stage two, bloat, or you could also call it early decay. Hungry bacteria, microbes, and enzymes create gases. The buildup of gases in the body make it bloat and expand to like twice its size sometimes. Those gases contain sulfur, which contribute to skin discoloration. And this putrefaction begins to produce some really awful smells. This stage is generally between two to three days after death. So where the Parkers would be would be the second stage. When the bodies are recovered, and what that does is there's severe discoloration of the skin. Uh, it's purple, mottled, uh, sometimes even black. Another thing that happens is enzymes in the body are now um, active, and they are throwing off gases. So what happens to the body too is is it, is it gets to about twice its size um, because of this gas that's inside the body. Uh, the other thing that happens is the blood runs to gravity, starts to pull the blood down through the body um, and kind of pools at the bottom of the body. So you've got this body that basically appears either gray or black. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and most most of the parts. And like I said, it's been, we've had some 50, 60 degree days, but it's been cold at night. Um, so I'm throwing that all into the equation. Uh, you know. Yeah, that's just temp. So you still got to take into account. You got gravity going to work, off gassing, like microbial situations. So it's, it's, a, it's more than just temperatures involved. And it, we don't but, know anything about predation. We don't know any. We don't know if any coyotes got to them. We don't know if anything, you know, got to them as far as that goes. Um, so we don't know. We don't. We don't have any idea. Um, so you've got this body that's, you know, appears dark gray or black. It's double its size, and we have the police telling us that there's no sign of obvious trauma. Okay, so what would obvious trauma be? Oh, one other thing to mention. Another thing that happens in the bloat stage too. Um, is, you know, you have these uh, openings that happen in the body because, you know, the gas starts to just build up so much that the skin can split. So you, you can have open wounds on, on bodies that are in the bloat stage. So if you think about this, no obvious signs of trauma, what what obvious signs of trauma or signs of trauma be? They would be, you know, stab wounds, uh, you know, shots, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, 
that's what they're probably not saying. It doesn't mean that maybe these people couldn't have been strangled or, you know, stabbed and they just didn't catch it right away. Don't be surprised if when the autopsy comes back, that happens. Um, I thought of another reason why they might say there's no obvious signs of trauma. Um, but out of respect for the family, we'll, we'll hold back on that until we find out what's going on with the autopsy. Although there's no obvious signs of trauma. Uh, that doesn't mean a whole lot at this stage. It, there's an autopsy going to be done, and maybe we'll find more. Yeah, but it's just what we're getting at. The whole reason we're bringing up the stages of decomposition isn't to be morbid, but it's just to say that it's a little bit early to determine if no foul play was involved. I thought that was you know? a reach, yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I thought it was a so, reach. And uh, I'll tell you, it's it's been kind of strange. The... Uh, one thing, before the bodies were discovered, one thing that I had been thinking about a lot was Barry, obviously, because of how much you know, we've covered that subject. But one thing I didn't – I never theorized with Barry was, you know, unfortunately, a serial killing situation. But that had crossed my mind at some point before these bodies were discovered. And, you know, it's actually something I'm still thinking about because uh, – I know you were going to talk about it a little bit, but it's not just Barry and this couple that's been missing in that area. It's it's other. Yeah, there's been a couple it's other. It's got a past to it. Warren Grove's got some uh, dark history to it. If you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, and, uh, well, an area that's close. We know that that there was a body that was found in Stafford Forge in December of 2013, and initially everybody thought that it might be Barry. Um, you know, because it was a similar size. Um, and once again, the police held a lot back. So they just said that they had recovered this body from Stafford Forge in December. And that's uh, a couple had been walking through that area with their dog and found the body. Um, first initial gut reaction was, Hey, we found the missing hunter, you know? Um, and as the story rolled out over the course of a couple of weeks, they they came out first with there's no obvious signs of trauma for that body too. Okay, now we don't know what stage of decomposition that body was in. All right, but that's the first thing what they came out with is there's no obvious signs of trauma. So again, I think what that means is stabbing. Okay. Yeah. So right off the bat, everybody's like, "Oh, that's our missing hunter," and they held back other information, which later came out. And I can give you the nam the NAMIS number for this body because as of this day, this body still hasn't been identified. And uh, we came across it in our research early on, and I kind of just dismissed it right away. I'm like, well, the cops know what they're doing. They they know this isn't Barry. And then, you know, a couple things got us re-interested in it. And I made some inquiries with the people that we were talking with in the New Jersey State Police. And in this case, they were more than happy to help me out. Uh, and they were able to tell me that the body was fingerprinted, okay, and that the fingerprints did not match Barry. Now, I had to ask them this. And, um, you know, the family had inquired this when that body was found, too, and didn't get any answer from them. Um, they just yeah. got told, no, it's not Barry. All right. So when this body was found, uh, let me just read this article. State police have confirmed that a man's body was found yesterday in the Eagleswood section of the Stafford Forge wildlife management area. And once again, Stafford Forge is not in 
Warren Grove, but it's close. Okay. Uh, the man was discovered by a couple walking their door dog. Lieutenant Stephen Jones said the death has been labeled suspicious. Jones said. Now this was on. This article was written on December twentieth of twenty thirteen. We list every death as suspicious until we can prove otherwise, he said. And then it goes on to say, Barnett Zeldin, a 74-year-old Maze Landing man, was reported missing by family and friends on October 7th. He told them he was going hunting. State, state police have said, there's no immediate indication it's the missing person, Jones said. So there was no immediate indication back on this December 20th of 2013. State police are waiting for the results of the autopsy, which was done yesterday, he said. Okay, now a couple things. I would encourage anybody to send me information about what happened when they did the autopsy, because it doesn't exist. <laughs> That's the last you, you're going to hear about the missing body in Stafford, or the, the body found in Stafford Forge. Yeah. Okay. I put in so much work on trying to find out more about that. And I haven't found anything. And the last, um, of, we've, the we've last out and literally asked them point blank, what the hell, what's going on with this case? You know, we haven't heard anything there. Well, we didn't until and, recently. So, and yeah. th this is the last official word, right? We list every death sus suspicious until we can prove otherwise. There's no immediate indication. It's the missing person. So not, it's not Barry. There's no immediate indication. It's him. All right. So, fast forward to 2021, and I get on my email campaign with them, and I, I finally get through to um, somebody who actually gives me some information and lets me know that this body was fingerprinted and that they matched the fingerprints up against Barry's fingerprints, and they didn't match. Now, that means a couple things. That means that Barry's fingerprints are on file somewhere. So they had this information and they chose not to share it with the family. And I know this for certain. It did. They did not share it with the family. I've talked to the family. They didn't share it with them. Family asked state police didn't share it. Okay. I don't understand that. Yeah. Okay. And, and it came across as a very easy email. I mean, I literally sent it the night before, and the next day they were very happy to do it because what they were trying to do is they were trying to make me look like I was the stupid one, okay? <laughs> but, but here's the thing. They they tell these stories. We get these stories going. Reporters have this news cycle where things are kind of cool to write about for a few days, and then nobody ever finishes the story, right? And we have all these little patch newspapers and all these little media outlets here, and, you know, then they're on to the next biggest and greatest thing. And nobody ever actually finishes telling you the story. So um, we can talk a little bit about this guy and this body, but it is not Barry. Okay. But I just think it's interesting the way they go about their business here and, you know, talking about these things so nonchalantly and then never actually finishing out the story. And we, and we know why they do it. They do it because number one, there's information there that they don't want to get out because they want to get a confession out of somebody. And what they're going to do to get a confession is they're going to slip in a question when they're tired and say, well, what was he wearing when you killed him? All right. So this way he's the only one that could possibly know it's corroborating, you know, then a jury 
convinced, you know, is convinced that, yeah, yeah this is the person it's, that killed him. Yeah, it's stacking evidence for the prosecution. Right. But right. I understand that to a degree, but it, at a certain point, you're, you're holding back things that are, that should probably be public. Right. And, uh, so I, I took a, I, I went to web sleuths, right? Because, you know, they have the, the NAMIS there and, and, Mm-hmm. I, I took a couple pictures because I couldn't, you can't forward stuff out of, of web sleuth. You can, you can forward a line of things, but I took a, I took a couple pictures of, of things that I thought were interesting. There was one here. It was January 1st. Um, uh, here it is. Okay. So this guy had a suit jacket on. He had a banana Republic t-shirt. He had green sweatpants on with a drawstring and no shoes and socks. That's how they recovered this body. So obviously, don't exactly scream natural. You know what I mean, <laughs> right? So naturally, okay, this guy didn't walk into the woods with no shoes and socks and just you know have his green sweatpants on. This this body was dumped there. Okay, there was a couple other um, trolls on there that were like, "Hey, you know, I, a friend of mine's a cop, and we heard the body was." cut up into garbage bags. I don't buy into that. Um, but the, this guy was obviously the Stafford forge was used as a dumping ground. Okay. So that's the, that's the situation with this, right? But all this could have been resolved with just a little bit more divulging of information. Right. And maybe the Zeldin family could have not been wondering about this for the last eight years. Cause it's now been eight years. I I understand why they hold information so close to the vest, but I do not understand in this situation why they didn't share it with the Zeldin family. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I'm still suspicious of a few things as far as that goes. Um, it, initially, it was described as being, uh, the body was described as being Hispanic. That was, that was released. Right. And uh, I had talked to a, forensic pathologist a little bit about it and she was baffled why they would have come to that assumption unless it was, you know, extremely fresh. Um, and going back to the stages of decomposition, you know, it was explained that this body was identified by the fingerprints, not DNA. And um, talking to her, fingerprints you can't just get after a certain period. So the email came from a, de- a detective, I, you know, I won't release her name, but she also told me that the, the way they came upon, upon the Latino idea was that they did do DNA. Okay. So there okay. was a DNA panel done on that body. That's where they got this whole, this whole idea that, you know, that, that the person was Latino, but they didn't divulge that. They didn't tell the family. <laughs> so, damn, you know, Again, let these people off the hook, right? And then uh, WebSleuth is actually doing a really good job of figuring out who that body might be um, by comparing it to missing people at that time. And uh, they've got uh, – I took a, a shot of this. They've got a, a guy that they think it may have been by the name of Alfredo Orozco Garcia. Uh, he was 66 years old. Uh, he was missing since September 12th of 2013 from Immokalee, Florida. 
Uh, he was five foot five, 140 pounds. Once again, this body was estimated to be five foot five. That was the other thing about this. They give an estimation on height. So when I heard that they had given yeah, an estimation yeah. on height, I thought, well, how can you estimate height? Now I know rigor mortis, right? It makes the body tense up a little bit, but my first thought was, did they find this thing in by in bags? Was it cut apart? Cause they gave a spread. They gave like a, it could be anywhere from 130 to 165 pounds, five foot five to five foot eight. I think that's what they said, but it, it was this range and they didn't divulge any, you know, they didn't divulge anything else. Yeah, and I yeah. think this guy fits the bill. So what I'd like to do with this is I'd like to post this picture too. Um, maybe somebody sees it, and maybe it helps us because that body's still un- unidentified. And actually, he was 60, 60 years old, not sixty six. Okay, uh, height and weight five foot five, one hundred forty pounds. Hispanic male, black hair, brown eyes. He was last seen at his residence in Immokalee, Florida on September 12, 2013. And they just thought that maybe he might have been, that might be his body. Maybe they, you, they drove north and, they, were, you know, they, they maybe robbed him and dumped him there in Stafford Forge. Now, one of the things about Stafford Forge is you can see it right from the parkway. If you're looking and coming south and you look to your right, you see these, you know, large pools of yeah. water and this, you know, very wooded area. So it's, it's very noticeable when you're coming South, if you're looking to dump a body, it, you know, coming South, it, it would definitely catch your eye. So that was another body that was found that, you know, in that general area. And then in 1992, there was also a series of bags of body parts that were found in and around this area. Uh, there was up to seven bags found, um, they were always seemed to be found by maintenance workers. So it seemed like it was maybe a mob dumping ground. But, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in this area. And then another thing that we need to talk about, too, um, is during this search, strangely, a few days ago, a story came out that they had busted an illegal meth lab um, within maybe like a mile of where these people went missing. Um, yeah. A guy arrested by the name of sharp who was running a illegal meth lab in the area. And they had this whole bus. They took the place down. Uh, so that happens in the middle of all this. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, maybe did they, you know, wander when the bodies were still missing, did they wander across this guy's meth lab? And we started getting up hope. Maybe we'll, you know, figure out what's going on here. But, uh, you know, that was pretty much the whole story. But it was just odd that it came up in the middle of everything. Yeah. And, I mean, the meth lab thing is a very real concern, man. And I'll be honest, I'd been thinking about that just going back to Barry. Like, maybe he came across something, saw something he wasn't supposed to see, and, you know, something happened. All but, kinds of gates in Warren Grove. All kinds of gates. I talked to a resident in the recreation area itself. There's, there's these plots of private property. It's kind of strange. It's really strange. I, you know, you go over there and you got to look at the, the tax maps to figure out what's part of the recreation area and what's private property. Right. And actually the, 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 we know that the area where Barry was found was private property. We know that now that, well, at least the area where his stand was, 
because as we know, there was somebody, uh, we don't think it was Barry, but at the tree stand where he was, you know, where his tree stand was, somebody nailed a private property sign on his tree stand. Now, to me, that sounds like a message. I don't think Barry would do that, right? Because he would camouflage his deer stands. So it seemed like it was like a message to stay out. But there's these areas in Warren Grove where you would just go, you'll just go back and it'll just be a gate. Um, you know, and, and I spoke to one of the people who actually owns a plot back there. And, you know, he talked to me about how he grows blueberries back there. Um, and nice guy, very nice guy. Still have his contact info. Um, he's been very helpful and helping me figure some other stuff out. So there are definitely areas of that recreation area that are, you know, private or considered private, at least by the people who are, who are back there. So yeah, he definitely could have, but I, you know, I think that's, that's good enough for today. I think we've, we've covered every angle. We, we'd like to really, you know, thank, um, the, the listeners out there. There's a lot of people listening to the show now. That's super cool. Um, one of the other things that I've been able to find I, out, I even want to thank law enforcement, the law enforcement that's been cooperative with us right. and the law enforcement that's been key in, you know, actually, you know, finding these bodies out there. Right. We're easy to interact with wicked garden podcast yeah. at gmail.com. I'll give you my personal email. If you don't feel like sending it from there, uh, that's Mike Mick 0209 at yahoo.com. I've gotten anonymous emails on that email, uh, that were sent through, third-party servers um, on other things that we've discussed. So there's always a way to, to give a tip anonymously. Um, if you have any information on the state police uh, aviation unit and its capabilities for FLIR, we would love to know. If you have any information on the disappearance of Barry, we would love to know. Uh, if you've heard anything stirred up from, you know, what we've been broadcasting, we'd love to know. I know there's enough people commenting out there and uh, that that people are talking, and that's all we're trying to do with this is just yeah, keep people talking. A, a theory we haven't already covered, um, anything, just let us know. Yeah. And uh, we appreciate it. Also, I want to say condolences to the Barker family. Absolutely. There. This is a really I'm difficult so time for them. Yep, absolutely. It's tough to lose parents around the holidays. That's horrifying. Um, and what I will share with you, we're going to do an episode. You know, it's time for us to to get back in the swing on this thing. Uh, we've got probably two, three more episodes to do and get them kicked out and get them done. There are really tough questions that need to be asked to some people who have commented previously on the show. I'm working on that. Now's the time to go back and ask maybe some harder questions. Uh, we've got some other things that we're working on to try to figure out what's going on. So we're, we're working on it. Both of our lives have been really, really challenging over the last few months, <laughs> to say the least. So, yes. you know, we're, we're digging our way out and we're getting back in the saddle. Um, I can tell you this and share this with you. Um, if you did share a tip with the state police, because they did tell me that there's been three tips called in two, three tips called in. That's the way the quote is two, three tips were called in. We checked them out. Uh, they didn't pan out. I would love to know who the two or three people are and what those tips were. 
and I would like to check them out on my own with my own, yeah. my own resources. So if you are somebody out there who has sent a tip into the state police and you were wondering what happened, um, maybe they got back to you. Maybe they didn't. Maybe you called in anonymously. Nothing happened. So do the family a favor. Give me that tip. Let me go forward with it and see what I can drum up. Once again, wickedgardenpodcast at gmail.com. Mike Mick, 0209 at yahoo.com. Uh, get back to us. We would love to hear from you. So here's the updated article I was talking about at the beginning of the episode, and this was published by the Asbury Park Press on December 2nd, actually written by Ken Serrano and Eric Larson. Gary and Lorraine Parker were found lying together some distance from their all-terrain vehicle, their bodies heavily injured from sharp vegetation in the underbrush. An autopsy was expected to be completed Wednesday, but the cause of death of the Stafford couple, who had been missing for two weeks, may not be immediately known for some time. Stafford Police Captain James Fawn said it is unknown why the pair left the ATV and how they ended up in the dense area. I don't think we're ever going to know, Vaughn said. I mean, there wasn't an ATV crash per se, but why they got off and why they ended up in the thicket the way they did, far from their home, we're never going to know. Their disappearance became a mystery that seemed implausible. How could two people vanish without a trace for, for weeks after going for a drive in the woods of Southern Ocean County? Surely some speculated on social media that they must have been the victims of foul play. Police said Wednesday foul play is not believed to have played a role. Investigators have speculated that when the couple ventured into the woods, one of them may have suffered a medical emergency during their outing, leaving the other unable or unwilling to leave their spouse behind. The search for the couple started November 23rd after their daughter notified police and sent out a message on Facebook. More than 100 volunteers on foot, a helicopter, bloodhounds, a state police search and rescue team and officers on all terrain vehicles combed the area. Early on, the ATV was found with Gary Parker's shotgun still strapped to it. Lorraine Parker, who suffered from mobility issues, had left her cane at home. Neither of them owned a cell phone. After a second day of searching, the case was turned over to Stafford detectives and the Ocean County Prosecutor's Office. But the Stafford police kept trying to find the Parkers. And with a drone that had been used elsewhere during searches on November 23rd and 24th, they finally spotted them. The only way we were able to find them was by using a drone, Vaughn said, describing the density of the woods in the area. We did have people in that area, but I can tell you it's the thickest part of the pine barrens you're going to find. The couple were found about 1 p.m. Tuesday. Vaughn himself had taken part in a grid search last week, and he encountered wooded areas that were virtually impassable. There were times I couldn't see six inches in front of my face, and there were times I had to crawl underneath things to get through the brush. Again, without the use of a drone, it was nearly impossible. You could have walked by them and not seen them unless you were directly looking. It was very thick, very dense. The couple were found about 200 to 250 yards from their home and about 70 yards from the ATV. They are believed to have driven into the woods. Their search party was estimated to have traversed 800 to 1,000 acres, Vaughn said. Online amateurs loose played professional detective on Sunday night. A law enforcement raid on a suspected meth lab two miles from the Parker home fueled conspiracy theories. Especially after a small amount of methamphetamine had been found on the Parker property the week before. 
That's the first time I've ever heard that reported. The investigation was not related to the missing persons investigation involving Gary and Lorraine Parker of Warren Grove. Stafford police were compelled to write in a news release about the drug enforcement action on Gray's Road in the Warren Grove section. And that's where the article ends. So before I break this down, I sent a note to Ken, um, and I'll read that to you. Hi, Ken. Having read your article, what are your thoughts on the police's theory that one of them had a medical emergency and didn't want to leave the other side? Uh, if that was the case, how did they wind up in the thicket? How and why would they wind up in the thicket? Why wouldn't they remain at the ATV? Why wouldn't the other partner try to travel to the house to call the authorities? Why would they remain in the middle of a thicket once it got cold and dark, only 200 yards from their home? Lastly, no other outlet has reported that a small amount of meth was recovered at their property. When did you find that out? So Ken answered back, seems like a, a nice enough guy, but this is an interesting take on it. And I think he's right. And I think this is the way the cops look at it. So uh, I'll read his reply. Thank you for your note, Mike. You asked some important questions. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like there will be any answers. And I got to paraphrase this part because his sentence doesn't really make sense. The police told him that the only people who know what happened to them is them. <laughs> That's what the cops told him. I'm not sure what to make of the authorities' theory. They're paid to solve crimes, not mysteries. So once they determine that there was no crime, their job is pretty much done. That theory was the best they could offer. We learned of the small amount of meth from authorities. I'm not sure of the time frame, but I think it was a few days before they were found. Many people read the stories of the couple, and I'm sure just about all of them are wondering the same things you are. Wish I could provide some answers. Thanks for reading, Ken. So there's a lot to take apart there, but before I do that, let me talk a little bit more about the Parkers because I found out a little bit more information about him. Gary was uh, a clammer. He was actually a bayman, and I've been doing that for quite some time. Gary also enjoyed hunting. He was a very avid deer hunter as well as a duck hunter. From the age of 17, he was a duck guide, showing hunters where and how to find ducks. Gary also had pride in the fact that by the age of 22, he owned his own piece of property in Warren Grove, where he built that log cabin that he and Lorraine still lived in. He was an avid collector of decoys, and from time to time would carve his own. He also enjoyed going out on his ATV. Above all else, his family and friends will always remember his great sense of humor. No matter how he was feeling, he was always happy, always had a smile on his face, always joking. He was a dedicated husband as well as a loving father. He, along with Lorraine, will be greatly missed by all. Doesn't really fit the profile of a meth user. You know, so we heard there that there was a trace amount of meth found on the property. Uh, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that the Parkers were doing it. It doesn't mean, you know, anything along those lines. Um, but it is interesting that they found what they call a trace amount or small amount of meth. What What is a small amount of meth? I don't know. And I thought it was interesting the way Ken put it. He said, you know, that they're not there to solve mysteries. They're there to solve crimes. Um, but I noticed that Ken had some information that a lot of other reporters didn't report. So take what you want out of that. So before we start to take this apart, let's talk about that article and some of the key points in there that are new information. Number one is that the Parkers didn't own cell phones. Number two is that a trace amount or a small amount of meth 
Uh, we have no definition of what the police think is a small amount, but there was a small amount of meth found on the property. Uh, also that Mrs. Parker walked with a cane. So that's the important things to know here. So given this new information and the parameters of the police theory, here's the best possible scenario I can put forward. So sometime between the 18th and the 21st, the Parkers went for an ATV ride. Carrie was probably driving and Lorraine was probably on the back. She left her cane at home, so probably didn't anticipate getting off of the ATV. They got about 200 yards away from the house. Uh, we probably would assume that it is on a trail that they know how to get on and off of and that they've probably traveled before since they've been, you know, on that property since he was 22. So 45 years they're on this property, 45, 46 years. So must know the lay of the land. Um, something happens to Gary. He has a medical emergency. They don't have cell phones, as we know now. Lorraine doesn't have her cane. Gary may have had a heart attack, a stroke, something along those lines. Somehow they get 70 yards to 75 yards in the wrong direction now. Um, maybe they had started back towards the house or thought they started back towards the house. She doesn't want to leave his side. She doesn't have her cane. Maybe she's disoriented too. Uh, it doesn't say there was a crash, but maybe, who knows, maybe something happened. Uh, maybe a deer jumped across the path and, and hit one of them, something along those lines. Once again, this is the best story I can put forward, given what the cops are, are talking about in this article. At some point, it starts to get dark and cold. And to stay warm, they roll into this thicket, even though it's somewhat painful. And sometime between the 18th and the 21st, they pass away from exposure. That's the best I can come up with, given these parameters. Um, and that Lorraine either was unable to, unwilling uh, to walk back to the house, and that if they did scream out and try to find any help, uh, nobody heard them. So that's pretty much what the cops are putting forward here. Hey, and if that's so, if that works for you, that's great. Um, you know, there's just a lot of holes in it. Let's start to take apart what the cops are telling us about this and what their what their theory is. So a lot of this hinges on the decisions they made that day and Lorraine's mobility, and those are answers that we can't supply right now. So where were they going? What were they anticipating to do once they got there? Uh, did Gary feel bad before he left the house? Did they anticipate getting off and doing any kind of hiking or anything along those lines once they got to their destination? And also, how bad off is Lorraine? Uh, how bad off is she with this cane? Now, there's a lot of people that walk with canes. Sometimes they need a cane um, to just even step forward. You know, we see people with walkers. We see people with those four-point canes. Uh, sometimes people just have a cane or a walking stick. So we don't know how much she relied on that cane, but she just decides not to take it. And that leads me to believe that she's just not that reliant on it. What it comes down to is it's hard to believe that uh, these people who would be very familiar 46 years with this property get 200 to 275 yards away. Uh, Gary being a very experienced outdoorsman, 
Uh, those are outdoorsy people to begin with. That's how they were described in many articles. They decide they get so disoriented that they can't find their house, which is only 200 and some odd yards away on a trail that they're very knowledgeable about. And that Lorraine decides not to, there has to be a decision at some point where Lorraine decides not to go get outside help. So was that a physical decision where it was, you know, she became overwhelmed herself and maybe had a heart attack. That would be an incredible Incredible coincidence. Remember, 75 yards from where they're found, that ATV is still sitting there. It wasn't reported to be crashed. It wasn't reported to not be working. It obviously has a headlight. That's the key to get back to the house and get some outside help. That's right there, 75 yards away, and they decide not to go to it. But at some point, this experienced hunter, uh, fisherman, bayman, and his outdoorsy wife decide at some point that they can't find their own house and they somehow succumb overnight in not that cold of temperatures. And they're not able to scream, yell for help, not able to signal for help somehow. She could have went back and got the shotgun off of the ATV and maybe took a couple shots in the woods to get somebody's attention and scream. To me, it's just not a good enough explanation. She gets out there, finds them, and doesn't want to return to the house or cannot return to the house to call the authorities on the landline. She can't scream loud enough or stagger towards a house to get a neighbor to help. I don't know. For me, that's all a little bit, uh, a little bit of a thin explanation. It's also incredibly hard to believe that the bloodhounds would not be able to smell the scent of decomposing bodies, even if they were just two or three days old, and that those bloodhounds didn't pick up on those people where they were laying. That's just a little bit too hard to take. What are we feeding these dogs? So, you know, that's the police's explanation here. We're going to have autopsy results sometime in the next four to five weeks. It would be interesting to see if we actually find out anything, if the reporters stay on it. I get it. I get why the cops move on to something else. There's always something new to get going. I think in some ways this points out why this 24-hour news cycle world that we live in actually um, benefits the police in situations like this. Um, I think the swipe at what they call online sleuths, you know, I, I don't think it's too far-fetched once you find out that there is a trace amount of meth or a small amount of meth found on the property to wonder if it has something to do with the guy who's selling meth two miles away that gets arrested in the same week. I mean, I don't think that's that's uh, terrible to speculate on it. The two of them could be tied in together. Who knows? Repeated meth use doesn't leave people with a lot of common sense. Perhaps somebody who is a customer of uh, Mr. Sharp uh, or some type of rival mistake their property for his, you know, or maybe they ran into somebody or one of his customers who was, you know, messed up and walking through the woods figuring they're, they're going to rob him or something along those lines. You just don't know. And as of this recording, we do not have a definitive cause of death. Quite frankly, podcasts and online uh, sites like Web Sleuth and crowdsourcing information and 
uh, familial DNA and uh, things of that nature, retired detectives who are working with people on Web Sleuth, they're, they're closing a lot of cases. They're bringing a lot of stuff to light. Uh, podcasts like Up and Vanished have actually even helped solve some cases. So I don't think there's any value in denying that it's a new age in the media and a new part of technology is, is coming in. You know, if obviously if the cops don't have time to iron out these details, then maybe we're better off crowdsourcing it to people who do. But um, I hope Ken's wrong. I hope we do find something out. And I hope the police and the media find more value in giving closure to families than they do in selling papers, page views, and just plowing mindlessly through work to get to the next case. And if the Parkers are listening or any member of their family, you know, just keep asking for answers. Stay on the police, you know, Um, because if you don't, you're just never going to know. Really important lessons to, to take from this are, that if you turn away and you stop asking for answers, you're never going to know. You have to stay on them. You have to push it forward. And you have to stay on top of it. One thing we sincerely hope to do with this show is see that the process improves and hold officials accountable. And it looks as if this case was handled a little bit differently than Barry's was. Uh, in this case, there was an outcome where we were able to recover bodies Hopefully, as it improves, we'll be able to recover people while they're still alive. Uh, So anything we can do to that ends works for me. After all, if that's the role for independent media going forward, then everybody wins, including the police. And they should learn to embrace it and use it to their advantage. And with that, I'll get off my soapbox. Thanks for listening.